Welcome in to World Soccer Talk Radio here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, WorldSoccerTalk.com, the American Forces Network. Thank you so much for making this show a part of your daily plans, be it live here on Sports Byline or in podcast form via any of those outlets that I just told you about. You know about them. That's how you're listening. Thank you so much for doing it. My name's Nate Abaurea. Leave us a message on Twitter. Leave us a, do you call it a tweet? Yeah, I, th- I think we call it a tweet. I think I should know that by now. Twitter, send me a message. DM me. Who knows? If I follow you back, you can DM me. At NateWST at World Soccer Talk to get a hold of all of us and leave us a review on iTunes when you get a chance. Very exciting show for you today. Wally Downs is going to be with us. Wally is known as the man that really originated the term the crazy gang for the Wimbledon squad back in the late 1980s. And he just created a brand new book. He was actually the co-author of a brand new book entitled The Crazy Gang, the true insider story of football's greatest miracle. Now, some of you may be old enough or historically inclined enough to know all about that era of Wimbledon and and what they represented, the old Wimbledon FC, not to be confused with the new AFC Wimbledon. That's a whole nother can of worms there. But that old school, late 1980s Wimbledon squad that won the 1988 FA Cup final, one of the greatest upsets of all time over my beloved Reds of Liverpool. And we all know names like Vinnie Jones, but there were so many more that went in to this crazy gang and a team that kind of went against what people look at as the beautiful game. They played a gritty game. They played a physical game. Some say they played a nasty game. They played a lot of football in the air, a lot of route one soccer. So it's going to be interesting to talk with Wally about the legacy of the crazy gang and get a little look inside this new book again entitled the crazy gang the true insider story of football's greatest miracle again tweet us at world soccer talk and tweet me at nate wst nate cabarea and wally downs with you on the other side of this break stay tuned world soccer talk radio Listening to World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nate Abarea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Pretty good. Pretty damn good, that's yeah! <laughs> Welcome back in to World Soccer Talk Radio here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. My name is Nate Abarea. Tweet me at NateWST and get a hold of all of us at World Soccer Talk. Very special treat for you today. I've been wanting to get this man on the show for quite some time. His name is Wally Downs. He is the co-author of a brand new book entitled The Crazy Gang, the true insider story of football's greatest miracle. We're talking Wimbledon on the show today. Wally, how you doing, sir? I'm great, mate. And you? 
I'm doing fantastic. So uh, you're a former professional footballer yourself, played for Wimbledon and, and Sheffield United and a former manager at, at Brentford. So we'll, we'll get into all that stuff for, for you personally here in a little bit. But we got to start with this book. Tell us where the inspiration for this thing came from. It's one of my favorite eras of, of football history in, in England and, and a real unique one in regards to Wimbledon as a club. Well, um, some guys in, in England made a documentary for BT, which is British Telecom, which is one of the, uh, the, the bidders against Sky, and they're trying to boost their football audience. And they, they come up with the idea of doing a, a video, a, a documentary on the Crazy Gang. Now, what it actually was, was a video basically about the FA Cup final when Wimbledon beat Liverpool. Uh, so they got the big guns uh, on board, which was like Vinny, Dave Besson, uh, Dennis Wise and Fashionu. And, 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 and they interviewed uh, most of the other guys, but Dave Bassett and I had left just at the, uh, the, the season before that, so we weren't involved in that. And every interview that they had, the guys were saying, well, Wally and Dave and Dave and Wally, blah, blah. And they really sort of couldn't call it the crazy gang without sort of coming back to us because we'd been there for, you know, from, from when it was, when we started in 1977. So, that was made, and Dave saw it, and he took a little bit more umbrage than I did, that it was just concentrating on the cup final, and not the previous 10 years that it took us to get from, you know, grassroots some, uh, amateur level into the into the Premier League. So we decided to do a book and give all the other guys a mention who, who'd, who'd spent a lot of time and a lot of toil and a lot of, a lot of blood getting into that, but the privileged position of being in the first division. Now, Wally, many people call you the, the instigator and, and, and the man who kind of spawned the term crazy gang. Can you tell us how that, how that terminology came to be? <clears throat> well, uh, we would, we would in, the, in the second division, the, the tier below the Premier, I know, two tiers below the Premier, and we went on a really good FA Cup run and we were playing Nottingham Forest. And a guy, uh, we used to work for one of the daily newspapers, network newspapers, came down to do an interview on us and asked all the pen pitchers, and he came to me and asked me to sort of say what all the guys were like. And I did it very tongue in cheek. And I was, you know, I was not abusive, but, you know, I was a bit near the mark was giving some of the lads a bit of stick. And, uh, you know, I just said, yeah, yeah, we're the crazy gang. And, and, and it stuck because we played Nottingham Forest and beat Nottingham Forest with the European champions in that cup game. The headline stuck. And we, and because we went on and we were quite successful after that. Uh, you know, it stuck with us throughout all our success. It's it's named basically on an old, uh, you'd call it vaudeville, but we used to call it an old musical uh, group <laughs> called the Crazy Gang who were funny. So it, it was an old one that I've been brought up with. What are some of the, the, the new revelations or, or stories in the book that, that people are going to find, things that they may have never known uh, about this era <laughs> of, of Wimbledon and the Crazy Gang? So, sorry, Nate, you just broke up this. So what are some of the new new revelations or stories that people are going to discover in this book, things that they may have uh, never known before about this era of Wimbledon and, and your crazy gang? Well, I think what, what, what we um, sort of wanted to adjust the balance, because we were known as being a very direct team. Uh, there's so much possession football being played now in the Premier League, and, and certainly it's going down a little bit. And we, were, we, we sort of shook it up and played very direct back to front. Uh, put teams under pressure, a bit like Barcelona do now, pressing high up the pitch. But we were a little bit more raw about the way we did it, and we we were big and and we were aggressive, and and everybody just thought that that's all we were about. But in reality, 
you know, we, we were breaking things down. We were videoing before anybody else was. We had all the stats of the, of the breakdowns of how many times we, set, we had to get in the final third, how many times we could afford to give the ball away in our half. And we knew this, and we played dumb whenever we were asked. Yeah, yeah, we just kick it long. That's all we do with our bothering tactics. So what we tried to give is an insight into how how it was sort of how it was shown. It wasn't just brawn. There was a lot of thought behind it. And Dave Bassett was the one who really was behind all that. He was very forward thinking at the time in the eighties. So he wanted he, he did a lot. Of, he, he wanted to show the world thirty years later that it wasn't just raw and sort of um, brutal football. Uh, so I was I sort of went along with that, and I and I sort of got hold of the boys and just got a few of the anecdotes to come out really. Now, Wally, how do you feel about that? Looking looking back on this era now, you know, twenty five or more, thirty years later. And and thinking back to to how you guys were viewed then, and and how the legacy of this team is is viewed now in terms of the the gritty root one football that that you speak of, the physicality that everyone remembers about this Wimbledon team. When you guys actually had quite a few quality footballers and did play some some very quality stuff and were innovative in in so many ways, do you feel that that this Wimbledon team and and this era of the crazy gang ever really got the complete credit that it deserved? Deserved as a as a true football club. No, it didn't because uh, if you look, that team was together together an awful long time. They were, you know, out of the from from us going from the fourth division to the Premier League, out of a squad of twenty one when we were in the Premier League, thirteen had come through our youth academy, and eight of the players played in all four divisions. Now that's. You know that that's a phenomenal record again. When you look at the other, how the other clubs were, were, were going about their business at the time. Now, none of our players, yeah, I'd say none of our players were taken for any from any clubs that were higher in leagues than us. Uh, any players that, were, that left the club were discarded and went to lower clubs. So, all the time we were being successful, managers, um, commentators were looking at the team saying they can only play that way. That's all they can do. Now, when we got into the Premier League and had our first good season, when we, I think we had a better team the first year in the Premier League than we did when we won the FA Cup. We should have won it the year before we got we knocked out in the quarterfinals by Tottenham, and you know we made a bit of a balls up with our preparation. We went away and should have stayed at home. But anyway, when when we uh, after that first year in the Premier League. All the managers sort of took up and took notice and thought, you know, we've been wrong all this time about them. They're not Sprawn and Route 1. And uh, Besson went to Newcastle, 600,000. Wisey went for 1.7. Uh, Andy Thorne and Brian Gow went, both went to 1.5, 1.6. Nigel Winterburn went on to, to Arsenal. I went to Sheffield United. You know, the, 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 there was a flood of players that, that, that all of a sudden managers realised they weren't just, you know, brutal brutal players they could all play football and they all went on to be strong characters and good players at, at higher at what was thought to be bigger clubs than Wimbledon now Wally on, on the flip side of this this is a debate that I get into oh so much with, with coaches here in the states with, with friends abroad and in the UK and and that is this obligation to to play the beautiful game and and to play defeat and then the old the old Brian Clough quote you know of if uh, if if God wanted football played in played in the air he would have, he would have put grass above the clouds you know you play defeat and it's your obligation to play 
play the beautiful game. And my thing was always, well, no, teams at the professional level have an obligation to win. And, and you guys did play quite a bit of Route 1 football. How do you feel uh, about that And when you hear people say that a team should, should play the, the beautiful game the way it's meant to be played? How, do, how does that make you feel? I don't want to feel... It's not, the, only, the only thing, certain in life has changed. And, and the way the game has changed now into the Premier League, and, and, it's, and it's leaking down lower, uh, there's too much emphasis on possession. Everyone has seen uh, Barcelona play, and everyone wants to be like Barcelona. What, what I tend to see now is everyone being a bad pastiche of Barcelona. Barcelona plays slow, and they play possession football. They keep you moving around. And then when they get in that final third, they play fast. They get the ball behind teams. They take people on with dribbling. When I watch teams trying to emulate Barcelona, in the Premier League certainly, and, and, and you know we have a strong four divisions here, to see lesser players trying to play possession football where there's no penetration, nobody turning defenders around, nobody attacking the back of uh, players, nobody getting crosses in, nobody like making any challenges in the box. I look at it, and I've got to be honest, it, it, I find it boring. Unless, unless I've got a professional uh, uh, um, job to do uh, watching the game or, or scouting the game, I look at it and after 15 minutes, I'm, I'm, I'm channel surfing. You know, there's nothing worse <laughs> than good. There's nothing worse than good football played badly, and I see it now with, with they put the the, the, the percentage of. Uh, Ball possession on the, on the TV. Some teams, you know, and, and the commentators are astounded that uh, Man United had seventy percent of the ball today, and they got beat two one. Well, you know, if you if you've got, if you've got the ball for long periods of time, it just gives the opposition a long time to get behind the ball, get eleven men behind the ball, and then it's very difficult to break down. Uh, the, the, the way to hurt teams is to hurt them quickly. Uh, put them into places they don't want to be, put the ball behind defenders, attack the ball, attack defenders with the ball to the back of the defenders and make things happen and get goal mouth action. That's the way to win football matches, not by passing the ball around for 20 minutes in your own heart. Wally, yes or no, real quick, do you think you could ever play for Louis van Gaal? Well, not with my ankles, no. Not at this stage. <laughs> oh man, we're back after this right here on World Soccer Talk Radio. Nate Avarea and Wally Downs here with you, talking the crazy gang, talking Wimbledon, talking tactics, talking strategy. And we'll talk a little history on the other side of this break. It's World Soccer Talk Radio Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. And now, more of World Soccer Talk Radio, right here on Sports Byline and SportsByline.com. Nate Abarea and Wally Downs back here with you on World Soccer Talk Radio, Sports Byline Broadcasting Network, talking all about the new book entitled The Crazy Gang, The True Insider Story of Football's Greatest Miracle. 
Let's paint a little picture for folks who, who aren't maybe maybe aren't as familiar with, with this era of Wimbledon uh, and go back as early as possible. The way you talked about in the book, what you really enjoyed uh, about the creation of this book is you guys went back to the beginning. You went back to the to the lower divisions and, and the humble beginnings of of this so-called crazy gang. Can you kind of paint a picture for us, Wally, of of what a an average match day experience was like for you Wimbledon players in the early days? of the crazy gang well we were there were four professional four professional leagues uh, in England and there's a, a fifth league that at the time was part time so they, they, they'd get sort of not great money but they'd be, they'd be working in banks they'd be airline pilots and they played football they'd train twice a week and play on a Saturday now if they won the, the, the fifth division they could be voted into the league Nobody ever was until Wimbledon went three years on the trot and got put in the league. Now, we got in the league. We had the smallest ground, the smallest wage bill, the smallest transfer budget, and the smallest uh, set of fans every week in the, in the lowest division. Uh, first of these, first year we did okay. Second year we got promoted. Third year we got relegated. Went up again and came down again. So it was a real yo-yo start to it. I mean, it People look at it and think that we went from the fourth to the first, but there was a lot of heartbreak in it in between. And an average match day, we'd get in regular time, 12 o'clock, prepare very professionally. You know, that that was the one thing that we could affect. We couldn't have a lot of influence on how many fans turned up to watch us. We had to build a a following. Uh, We were very limited with our funds, as I said, because the crowds were low. So all we could do was make sure we were as professional as we could be, and we'd prepare... Uh, you know, superbly well for the games. And if we were beaten because we were young and hungry, we were beaten. It was luckily that lucky that the manager had a lot of faith in us at the time, or perhaps it was his constricted budget that uh, that kept us together and gave us that <laughs> sort of camarad gave us that sort of camaraderie of a couple of relegations that, that, that saw us through when we got up to, into the higher divisions. Uh, you certainly don't get that nowadays. There's a sort of two-year span. And, and managers and shelf slice are getting something down to about 10 months now. So we, I think we had the last of where you can actually build a team, build a spirit, build a philosophy, and give the manager time to be successful. I think those days are gone now. Well, it's interesting because you call yourselves the, kind of the, the last of a breed there. And in many other ways, you guys were, were revolutionary and, and really started things that were, were unheard of before. So it's this interesting mix of, of being the last of a dying breed and, and the first of a new breed. And, and it transitions perfectly into this. And that is, when did you realize how special what was going on at Wimbledon really was for you guys? When did that moment hit you? Well, as I said, we got pro- we got promoted a couple of times from the from the lowest division, from the fourth division. But we were young, and and we were we were young, and we were good enough to get out of that sort of that lo- the lowest league. But we weren't good enough to really survive in the one above because you know there were still players who could who could sort of cut it in that division above, and we didn't have enough know how. So. By the time we got into the to winning the, the third division, so we got out and we we spent our time in the third division. We won that by a record amount of points. And in that last seat in the third division, when we were winning it, we got drawn against Nottingham Forest, who had Brian Clough and had just a couple of years before been European champions. Uh, we drew away with them at Nottingham Forest, and then we got them back to our place and beat them one 0 Brian Clough was very complimentary, thoroughly deserved. And the next year, 
we drew them again. Same thing. They're you know they've been uh, league cha- Premier League champions and had, had the, you know the top top players, Trevor Francis, Peter Shilton, Harry Lloyd, you, you name it. Kenny Burns, they had him. Woodcock, uh, was up front. And the next year we um, played them at home, beat them two 0 comfortably. Went up there against them and uh, got a nil nil draw. So we were playing with the same sort of side that had been together for two years in the lowest divisions. We'd taken on the European champions in four games and hadn't been beaten once. And that's that sort of sealed the belief that we had in ourselves because we had great belief in one another. You know, call it you know the folly of youth, but we 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 were sort of ballsy. We we went out every t- we didn't have a great deal of respect for the teams we played. We went out and thought we could beat anyone. Was you know 100 percent misplaced confidence most of the time. But then beating Nottingham Forest, we sort of looked at one another and thought. You know, we really do know what we're doing. This, this is no fluke. In the FA Cup, you can fluke a win against a team above you, but for four games against the you know European champions from two years before, not many teams in the world would have done that. We did it. Well, when you talk about that that ballsiness and that audacity that you guys had, that that youthful exuberance, how much of that was a, a trickle down effect from the manager himself, from Dave Bassett? Talk about him as a leader for you guys. Well, Dave was Dave was the reserve team manager when we were sort of a lot of us was me, Glenn Hodges, Paul Fishington, Brian Gow, Mark Morris. He had us when he was Dario Grady's reserve team manager. And Harry, you know, Harry was nuts. He was a very successful builder, a businessman, and he was a dirty, a dirty player when he played. He played non-league. He played in the England amateur side. But he was, uh, you know, he was a cranky guy. He he was part of a, an old Wimbledon team that uh, relied a great deal on team spirit. And he wanted to, he knew how much that mattered to him. If he was going to be a manager, he wanted the players to be with him. And he encouraged a lot of the hijinks that went on. He turned a blind eye to a lot of the things that happened, which other managers wouldn't have. Uh, in fact, he was involved in a lot of the things that other managers wouldn't be. You know, if there was a, there was any messing about to be going on. Dave wouldn't be far away from it. So, uh, you know, he could join in with the fun with the best of them, but he could also step away from it. And um, many of the time, we had a nightclub built right onto right near underneath our dressing rooms. So inevitably, we'd go in there after the game. Dave Bassett would come down. You know, he'd had a fair few drinks upstairs. There would be absolute ructions. Instead of having the team meeting after the game, Dave would come down a little bit sloshed, going on his way to drive home. We'd still be in the bar, and there would be chaos, real, real big rows. But then he'd come in on Monday, bang, all forgotten, and we'd start again. And he, he treated us like men. You know, he, 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 he allowed the hijinks, he encouraged it, he gave us some rain, which we sort of grabbed and run with, and uh, and he certainly he certainly set the, the standard for us. Well, we got under two minutes before we got ahead to break here, but that was just such an incredible point that you talk about with Dave Bassett there. And, and, and maybe you can speak for some of your teammates at the time, but how much did that endear him to you guys? So, wow, he, he acts like he's one of us, and yet we still have this yeah. respect for his authority. That sounds incredibly uncommon. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was a great gift. And if you look at Dave's record after that, he went on and he was very successful at, at every other club he went to. You know, he he built that sort of that uh, camaraderie, what he, what he, what he, uh, he, he discovered and blended at Wimbledon, he tried to take everywhere else. And he was very successful at Sheffield United. He took them from the third, 
to the first again. Um, and he had more successes at other unfashionable clubs. The problem Dave was had that uh, only clubs in trouble would come and get him. Uh, none of the big clubs ever trusted him for giving them money to do it. When, when Ron Atkinson became Sheffield Wednesday manager, they, I went for dinner with them and Ron said, look, Harry, he said, well, that's Harry Dave's nickname. He said, you know, it's the perception of people. If chairman have got come into some money or a new chairman comes in and he's got a load of cash to splash, he said he comes looking for me. When a chairman's in trouble and there's no dough and they need to get out of trouble, they look to you. He said, that's the way you're perceived. And it's unfortunate, he said, that you're not going to be able to shake it off. And it was the truest words ever said to him. Dave was never given like a budget where he could buy the players and play if he wanted to play a different way. You know, he was dubbed as a long ball manager, but he just he just played. He got the best out of the players that he had with him. Wally Downs is our guest in this edition of World Soccer Talk Radio. Very much enjoying this conversation. Hope you are as well. Stick with us. We're back after this right here on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. Continuing this crazy gang talk. Stay tuned. To World Soccer Talk Radio with your host, Nada Barea, on the Sports Byline Broadcasting Network. This man is absolute magic that belongs in a different galaxy altogether. Are you a fan of Mr. Magisterial? Are you a fan of, of our good friend Phil Shane? Are you a fan of La Liga? Do you like Real Madrid? Do you like Barcelona? Are you a fan of quality soccer? Well, El Clasico is just a few days away, so it's time to start thinking about where you are going to be watching the biggest rivalry in all of La Liga, Madrid and Barcelona. If you're in the U.S., you know the game is being shown exclusively on BN Sports and BN Sports Espanol, but if you don't get BN on your cable or satellite or you're a cord cutter, one of those cord cutters, you can still watch the game live or on demand with Fubo TV. Fubo TV a completely legal streaming service featuring tons of games each week from La Liga as well as Major League Soccer, Liga MAX, Serie A, the English Championship, Capital One Cup, and a whole lot more. You get BN, BN Espanol, Gold TV, Univision Deportes, Unamas, and even our friends from Fusion will be available for your viewing pleasure. Plus, Fubo TV now features DVR functionality. It works on your computer, smartphone, tablet, Roku, Amazon Fire, and the new Apple TV. And this is where you need to listen up. Very closely, World Soccer Talk Radio listeners, you can sign up for a free 24-hour trial today. All you got to do is go to worldsoccertalk.com slash FuboTV, and then if you like what you see, you lock in the low $6.99 monthly rate today. FuboTV, the best of live soccer in one place. Sign up today at worldsoccertalk.com slash F-U-B-O-T-V. That's FuboTV. The and you can watch El Clasico and I'm here with Wally Downs and I told Wally during the break there if I don't do this read no one's going to watch El Clasico Wally <laughs> yeah that's been sold out for 50 years don't worry about that 
No, it's it's all it's all on me. The responsibility lies on my shoulders to make sure that there's going to be viewership for that Madrid Barcelona match. All right, let's get back. Let's get back to the crazy gang. And and you brought up a few of the names uh, there there in the last segment. The names that people are are really familiar with for not only that era, but what they went on to do afterwards. Be it as footballers or in some cases as actors and 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 other creative outlets. And let, let's start with a guy who actually went on after. The crazy gang to have an incredible footballing career. His time with Wimbledon was was a huge part of it. And I speak of of Dennis Wise. Do you have any uh, any good Dennis Wise stories that you can share with us on the show right oh, now? Oh wow, too many. Well, my brother my brother lives with his sister at the moment. We grew up like literally two minutes around the corner from one another. So there's a few stories I can't tell you about him. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I mean Dennis. Dennis was a perfect fit for us. He got thrown out Southampton because uh, Laurie McMenemy was a little bit too strict for him and uh, and Dennis was a fiery little character. And even at 16, he told him where to go and walked out in Southampton. So I said to Dave, get him in, give him 100 quid a week, see if you like him. He fitted in perfect. And uh, he, he didn't play much for us because he was just, just young. He really got into the team after we left. But you can tell the character of the boy. Every, when he went to Chelsea, they were bringing people in like Hoddle, like Hullet, uh, like Viali, like Zola. Uh, Dennis stayed as captain of that team, and he ran that dressing room. Bates, you know, uh, any time uh, there was any problem with the manager, the, the owner would come to Dennis and ask him how it was going. Dennis run that team with an iron fist, and all of those top, top players had absolute respect for Dennis because he was the one, he was the, the, the bite in the midfield for them. And every time Chelsea went up a level, Dennis raised his game and went with them. You know, that was a true test of, of what sort of a player he was. Uh, every time they brought someone in to replace him, Hoddle, Hullet, they finished up playing with him as opposed to getting Dennis out. He was an exceptional player for Chelsea and, and I suppose it was a bigger part of his life being at Chelsea than it was at Wimbledon because he only had two, you know, probably two and, a, two and a half years at, 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 at Wimbledon but he had one on to have 12 years at Chelsea. All right, it's time to talk about one of the most well-known footballers, for better or worse, in uh, in English modern modern English history, and and one of the. I wonder who this is going to be. Oh, can can you only imagine where we're going with this one, Vinny Jones? You, you hear him, you hear him on my show every day with that nice liner from from Euro Trip. Pretty damn good, lads. Um, <laughs> let's start. With... I, was, I was I was his best man four years ago in Vegas. All right. All right. Well, hey, we'll, we'll push that one back Jekyll. a few minutes. Can you st- we'll, we'll start on the pitch. We'll start on the pitch. Can you give us your favorite on-the-pitch Vinnie Jones story, Wally? Okay, right. He's making his day. On, on the Thursday, Thursday afternoon, we're training, and Laurie Sanchez was suspended. Uh, Harry says he's handing the team out. He's thrown the bibs. He's thrown one to me. And he's also threw one to Vinny. Harry's, Vinny's going, what, are you taking a mick? Harry said, no. And that was how he told Vinny he was playing. We played in Nottingham Forest away. Vinny gives a penalty away. He's absolutely useless. Can't, can't possibly be playing again. Sanchez comes back in at the team with me for the following Saturday. But on the Friday morning, tweaks a hamstring because he's been out for a couple of weeks with a suspension. Vinny gets a reprieve. We're playing Man United at home. Alex Ferguson, off the full lot. It's our first year in the Premier League. Vinny's been off the building site for three weeks. Vinny just takes a corner. Bang, Vinny heads it in. 1-0. We battle away for 
God knows how long, an hour. Well, it's to and throwing, and you know we're we're not we're not really camped in there half, and neither are they in ours. Anyway, after an hour, they take off Remy Moses. He's uh, a really good midfield player, England international. So as he's going, I've been he's full of himself. He's played like one game and a half, one badly and one okay. And as he's going, he says to Remy Moses, go on, get off you, you've not had a kick. And looks over to me and winks. As I look at Vinny, over his shoulder, I can see the sub. It's Brian Robson, Captain Marvel coming on. So I said to Vinny, yeah. I said, just have a look who they're bringing. He says to me, yeah, I think we've broke their back now, Well, I said, yeah, have a look who they're bringing on. Brian Robson. He'd just been out. He hadn't played since the World Cup for England. He comes running on. Bin's had a look at him. He's looked over at me. His face is drained now. They're bringing on the best midfield player in the world. So he looks at me. I look at him. And then we cannot stop laughing. A goal kick's going to be taken. Brian Brian Robson runs on. It, well, I, I, I can't really swear on your show, can I? <laughs> so, so Brian Robinson, what the SNL are you two laughing about? And we couldn't even begin to tell it. <laughs> and we carried the game on, we won 1-0, and, and, and he never looked back from then. And he, he, he grasped every game, and he improved with every game. And, and he, I was just about coming to the end of my time. I sort of, I played 250 games by the time I was 24, and the last four years, I'd only, I only played 15. I broke my leg four times, still twice each. And he, he sort of came at the perfect time for me to hand over the mantle. You know, he he, he picked up the bat and he ran with it with gusto. And uh, you know, it, it, it's amazing the way the way he cracked on and got the best out of himself. He believed that he was going to be a footballer. He believed he was one of the best footballers in the country. He believed it to, to the core of his bones. He wasn't, but he <laughs> believed he was, and that was that was the big thing for him. All right. What was the nastiest thing you ever saw him do on on a football pitch, Wally? Uh, well, he used to be slightly exuberant with his tackles, and he 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 did used to launch himself off the ground with a two footed tackle, which you know I used to cringe when I used to see it sometimes. Luckily enough, he used to miss most of the time, but on the on the other occasion when he did catch him, it it, it wasn't great. But uh, he, he was an honest player then, but uh, you know. If push comes to shove a little bit, then uh, we could get a little bit physical, and you had to rein him in a bit. You know, really did I see him lose his temper and use his fists, but he was a very physical player if need be. All right, now, now let's let's go off the pitch. You say best man four years ago. Yeah, well, he um, they they it's Vinny and Tanya Rina, you know, they married God knows how many years ago, just after the cup final, I think it was. And uh, he, he, they wanted to renew their vows, and I, I, I was over there. He called me over, and, and uh, I was best man at the wedding. Tanya and I went over there. We, we stayed with them for three weeks. The, the, I mean, I, I used to go over every year, and I, when, I, when I left West Ham, I had sort of a year out there. And, uh, and it was a lot of the time, I mean, it's awful because we, we went out for, we stayed with him for a week. We got married in Vegas, so we went down to Vegas all week. And then Tanya and I said, look, we need to go. We went down to Shutters, I think it was, down in uh, Laguna Bay, Laguna Beach. We'd been there three days away from him. And he said, right, he's running that. said, we're coming down. Jesus Christ, we've been with you for two weeks. You've got to leave us alone for a minute. Next thing I know, he's in the hotel. He's got the suite above. Right, come on, Morgan, you know. He's just, he's just that sort of a guy. He's very, very, look, you know, he just wants to be around you all the time. And he's welcoming and. You know, he's over here at the moment. You know, I've been playing golf with him all the time. And, and you know, he's probably my closest friend out of the crazy gang teams. You know, whenever he just says, 
you know, being a manager and a coach is a very precarious time. And every time I get the sack, you know, he's on the phone straight away. Right, get out here, come on, go golfing. And, you know, I just jump on a plane and go out and go come out there too. All right, last question about Vinny, and then I want to talk with you about modern-day uh, AFC Wimbledon and, and your thoughts on MK Dons and, and that whole that whole cup of tea. Uh, did you ever imagine in all your years around Vinny as a teammate, as a friend, that he'd become a movie star? No, but it did surprise me, because I told you that when he, when he was a... He used to be a groundsman at his local school, and uh, when, he, when he left school, and he used to put his, his heart and soul into that when he was on the building site. Everything he goes into, he goes into with, you know, maximum beliefs and he grabs. He's never failed at anything. You know, he really does give it a go. And it's a really interesting story in how he got into the films. His first part was Lockstock, wasn't it? Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. Uh, Matthew Vaughan and um, Guy Richard had run out of money casting the film. And and they hadn't filled Vinnie's spot, which would be Chris. And, and in, in the uh, script, it said Vinnie Jones type. And they'd run out of money for casting. And, and Matthew said to, to a guy who didn't know him, why don't we ring him? They rang him. He went and met him. Uh, said, came back and said to me, I think I'm going to do this film. They want me to do it. I said, okay. So I went and had lunch with him and I was dropping him down there. They'd run out of money. And so he said, well, what would you want? He'd give them £60,000 just what, two days after meeting him just to keep the film up and running. Now, Guy, Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughan were completely unknown to everyone. And they even they said, right, will you play Big Chris? He said, yeah, sure. He said, well, we just got to get some funding. How much do you need? Well, sixty thousand dollars to get the casting done. Bang, you give it to him in two days' time. And that's how we got the, the part in Lockstock. Not many people, not not many people know that story. That is a beautiful, beautiful story, and I love it. They're they're looking for the the Vinnie Jones prototype. Well, how about we just get yep. Vinnie Jones? Yeah. All right, last, yep, Vinnie last Jones. Thing. <laughs> Last thing that we got to talk about here is is how you view this modern day sort of confusion that is the legacy of Wimbledon because this side was was moved away and and became the the Milton Keynes Dons and and then we have the the new AFC Wimbledon. How do you feel about about all that and 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 that whole area of of new history with Wimbledon and and the the revival in in the local community that you were a part of with this new AFC Wimbledon? Well, I mean, I'm um got nothing but admiration for what AFC have done. You know, they really did grow from a park team who just put an advert in the, in the newspaper saying we're going to reform the team. It's come from absolutely zero into the Football League, you know, in, in the same sort of amount of time that we took to get from the fourth to the first. They've progressed into the fourth. They've come through 14 divisions. You, you, It really is park football that they started off at. So I've got nothing but admiration for them. The other thing is, uh, I've got no time for the other team. I, I don't wish them badly, but, you know, they, they were part of the reason that all of us from the Wimbledon original team have nowhere to go back to. You know, the team was systematically sold. Uh, the, the ground was sold off to developers uh, and the club had to play at, at Crystal Palace. Then the team was sold, just the players were sold, to some Norwegian people. So there was, there was literally no football club, no players. And, and the club just died. Out of that, uh, it's like having two who's the legitimate sons of AFC Wimbledon that I have an affinity with, but I didn't play for. And there's also MK Dons that I have no real affinity for because they sort of, that, that, that was the reason my club got taken out of the borough where we lived, uh, where we played, I mean. 
but hopefully Wimbledon AFC will be moving back into Wimbledon Borough uh, and, uh, and they're buying the local greyhound track so but, you know there's hope to get back into the Borough but my big bug there is all of us when we get together which we haven't done at all until the book launch we have nowhere to go back to to to, to sort of reenact our old days or talk over our achievements everyone else I speak to my age and my contemporaries you know they're going back to Tottenham and they've got you know, they have old boy reunions and they're asked back to do some sponsorship work on match days. That team, the Wimbledon team that I was in, has nowhere to go. Now, AFC make us very welcome and it's terrific. And we're all aligned to those. But, you know, I didn't play for AFC. I didn't play for MK. I played for Wimbledon at Plough Lane. And that's gone. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's the heartbreaking thing about it. Well, I do appreciate your honesty on on all that and and the credit that is that is due to AFC Wimbledon for what they're trying to do and how what they've done very much. It's brilliant! It's absolutely brilliant what they're doing. And when I go down there, I see faces in the car parks and going into the ground that I remember seeing when I was sixteen, first going there as a kid. You know, the the the, the, the allegiance that those people have. And, and, and what they've done there is absolutely phenomenal. Well, I really, really appreciate you ending on that note. Cheers to AFC Wimbledon for what they're trying to do to revive everything that we talked about in this show today. This has been a great pleasure and a privilege. Wally Downs, you're welcome back anytime. And best of luck, best of luck spreading this book to the world, sir. Cheers, mate. I appreciate it. Again, the crazy gang, the true insider story of football's greatest miracle. We're back after this on World Soccer Talk Radio. Stay tuned. giving things to you the listener well our show today brought to you by the good folks at audible and they have got so many books and titles and bestsellers and fictional books biographies you name it they've got it all they've got the sir alex ferguson book they've got the john motson autobiography the bobby charlton book the secret footballer's guide to the modern game you get the new york times the wall street journal and you can get it free for the first 30 days go to audibletrial.com slash world soccer talk again audibletrial.com slash world soccer talk and you get a free audio book by just getting on board for this thing. Do it up. Thanks to Audible for their support. Thanks to uh, Mr. Cuddy back in San Francisco, the gaffer, and thanks to Wally Downs. My name's Nate Abarea. I will talk to you tomorrow. World Soccer Talk Radio signing off. Cheers. Cheers.